I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Toby Esplin, the owner of About Nature Tours. G'day, Toby. Hey, guys, how are you? Great. We're good, mate, and really excited to have you on the show. I've been following your Facebook page for about 10 years. You are a tour operator and tour guide, and you operate all over Africa. And what I've noticed about what you do is you don't just show people the big obvious things that everybody wants to see and why wouldn't you, but you you look at the smaller things too. You look at the invertebrates, the reptiles, particularly you're interested in birds and you look at the whole system, mate, don't you? Yeah, most certainly. And look, I wish I could take credit for doing the whole of Africa. I don't actually do the whole of Africa, specialising in South Africa uh, and expanding to Southern Africa and hopefully getting out to a few more destinations in the coming years. But uh, yeah, that's that's one thing, as you say, that's what we share passionate about. It's it's showing people the whole system. It's it's not just about lions, elephants, giraffe. Yes, you're going to see them. But what about everything else? What about the monarch butterflies, the African monarch? Not the Australian monarch that we get here. What about the ants? What about the termites? What about the hornbills? What about everything that they contribute towards the system? And when, and when you see those things without a tour guide like yourself... They're pretty fascinating. But when you've got someone that has been watching these animals for many years mm. and has built up a bit of picture and understands their ecology, it's a whole different picture and oh, it's so certainly. rewarding for people. Most certainly. And, you know, we had a telephone conversation the other night about a week ago or so um, where you were talking about the experience that you had walking through your own property here, seeing a little bit of sawdust at the bottom of the tree and somebody actually pointing out to you about the wasp that has actually laid an egg inside of there. And there's actually activity going on there that you don't see. And unless somebody who has been there and spent the time in the field is actually pointing it out, how are you going to know about it? I mean, how many of you, well, you guys, have you ever been to South Africa and seen the South African wildlife? Sadly not. No. <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet, yeah. that's right. We're hoping but, to get a discounted tour after this. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Certainly. But you see, the thing is, is that I've spent the time there in the field and I've spent that time walking through the felt, looking for all of those smaller things in my own personal time or whether or not it's on tours that I'm conducting for other people. You see things, you take all of that information in and then you use that for your next tour. Yeah, that's great. So you're always learning from you're always your, learning. Uh, your visitors. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. And, and what you say about learning from your visitors. Mm. It's, we were also chatting about that earlier. Is Never think that you know everything because the amount of times your clients are coming over for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see Africa. You know, we all grow up. I mean, hey, I'm from Australia as well originally. Z is for zebra, A is for aardvark. You know, you learn about all of these things from primary school as you're growing up. Yet to actually go there and see those animals in the flesh. You know, it's, it's if I recall back to my first tour, my first holiday to South Africa, went over there and I will never forget driving over the hill near Pretoria Scop in the south of the Kruger National Park. And as we drove over that hill, on the right-hand side is this big bull elephant walking through the field. 
I can tell you now, every tour, and I've conducted over a thousand tours in the Kruger National Park in the last 12 years, every tour I drive over that same hill and I can still picture that first elephant that I'd ever seen in the wild. It was absolutely amazing. And they're the experiences that just stick with people. But coming back to what we were saying is learning from your clients. Those people are coming over for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and they've studied everything. Yet for us as guides, we don't always have that opportunity. A lot of your experience, too, would be on the field. Most certainly. So you, you get to see certain things. You can predict when animals are going to be there. I mean, one of the things that we learned from Borneo, we had a fantastic guy called John Newer. He, yes. We did an episode of the podcast with him over in Borneo, and he was saying, as a tour guide, we don't just use our eyes. We use our ears, ears. and we use our nose smell. as well. And exactly. he was talking about, in Borneo, the elephants have a distinctive smell. Most certainly. Most certainly they do. Mm. Elephants have a distinctive smell. Wild dogs have a very strong smell. Uh, your hippos, your lion, your rhinoceros, buffaloes, they all have fairly unique smells. I'd want to learn those smells. Yeah. (laughs) Good to know. Uh, It it really takes a lot of time in the field, obviously, to to be able to distinguish between them all. But, yeah, they all have very, very unique smells. It's so sad, isn't it? I mean, the cradle of civilization, that's that's something that humans have lost. Now, Now, driving around the cities, people can smell a Macca's. And that's what kids grow up knowing, isn't it? Like, there's a Macca's. Oh, I've got that weird thing where I smell, I, I can smell a koala. Yeah, that's a good I, point. I do that, don't I? And yeah, then sometimes yes. I go, oh, I smell a koala, and we'll look up and there'll be a and koala And there'll be there. one. Like, yeah, wonderful. Wow, that's a bit strange. I actually almost think I had that the other day. Yeah. But I was looking up, I couldn't find one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good sense to use that we probably don't use it often. Mm. No, most mm. certainly. No, it's very true. And... It is exactly that. It's about experiencing, and that's what our tours are about as well. It's about experiencing the bush from every possible avenue. You know, it's not just looking for the big things. One, uh, you know, our motto uh, for our company, as as you said, our company is about nature tours. And when we first started our company, a lot of fellow guides used to always ask me, why about nature? So our motto became our answer, because there is so much more than the big five. And it's just because we want to educate people. Yes, there are those big things that everybody's going to show you. Everybody wants to tick off an elephant, a rhino, a buffalo, you know, the big five. A lot of people don't understand what the big five is, but that's okay. That's another story. But what about all of the smaller things? What about everything else that makes it up? You know, the amount of people who will come over to South Africa and or Southern Africa, they'll go on a tour and they will see their first impala. Now, to see an impala is pretty darn exciting the first time. Then you'll see it a second time and a third. Maybe by the end of the day, you've seen 50 or 60 herds. You know, they're a pretty common animal. So it's a little bit like driving up here through the Adelaide Hills, through uh, Mount Bold area, Kangarilla, stopping for your first kangaroo. Now, for us guys who live here now, it's pretty common. You, you're kind of over it after the first couple. But your international clients coming over, even here to Australia, they see that kangaroo, they are going to be over the moon. And it's exactly the same in Africa with an impala. So even though you feel like going, oh, impala, keep driving until we see something. <laughs> Most certainly. You've got to stop. You've yeah. got to stop. Mm. And, and, you know, as a guide, you really need to actually help people 
that that first impala might be 300 meters in the bush hiding behind the grass but even though that animal is so far away it doesn't matter you need to stop and say to the guys check this out this is an impala by the end of the tour you're going to be sick of them but it doesn't matter this is your first one how exciting is that i mean it's just it's as i say it's when i came over the rise and i saw my first elephant every tour since then that i drive over that same rise i can still picture the excitement and feel that excitement that i had seeing that first individual it doesn't matter how many more sightings i've had since then and elephant encounters oh i absolutely love them absolutely live for close-up elephant encounters i I think they're the most amazing animals yeah i agree they really are how do you get on like because i mean here in australia there's only one terrestrial animal that can eat you and that's the salty and you've got to go really (laughs) hanging out near the edge of the water to for that to be an issue but over there there's i mean we don't have much in the way of megafauna anymore no you've got to keep people safe too yeah yeah, most certainly. I mean, look, fortunately, in most of our national parks, you are restricted to your vehicle. Uh, there are rules and regulations in place that you must remain within your vehicle. You know, Kruger National Park is a classic example of the, the South African national parks. They have rules and regulations that you are, no part of your body is allowed to protrude from the vehicle while you're game viewing. Now, a section rangers or one of the park rangers is not going to pull you over and say, but you were pointing your hand out of the window. However, no leaning out of the vehicle or anything else is allowed. And the reason for that is simply because what you're also doing is you're breaking the silhouette of the vehicle. So your animals are viewing the vehicle as an object. They're not viewing it as meals on wheels. They don't individualize the people that are sitting inside unless you start jumping around making a lot of movement and a lot of noise. Then they start isolating. But if you're sitting inside of a vehicle, generally speaking, you're pretty safe. There have been a few incidences, none that I've ever experienced, fortunately, but there have been a few incidents over the years where you hear of leopards, for an example, attacking. uh, There was one a few years ago, a leopard attacked a guide, grabbed a hold of his arm. Uh, Fortunately, the guide... You know, got out of it with uh, with some pretty bad injury to his arm, but he was okay. He had his um, arm out the window. Yeah, well, we're driving around in open safari vehicles. So with the open safari vehicles, we can't necessarily, on some of them, we can't wind the windows up quickly. The passengers sitting in the back are basically open. You do have sides along the vehicle to protect the passengers, and you are much higher up. You're sitting on the back of a... A bucky or a ute here in Australia. Yeah, so... That sounds really scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, no, it's actually quite nice. So they're it's, not armoured vehicles. Mm. No, they're not armoured vehicles. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you move into some of the private nature reserves, the Sabi Sands, for an example, uh, your vehicle is a little bit more open. You don't have a canvas canopy over the top of you. So you're a little bit more exposed. However, the animals there in the Sabi Sands are a little bit more accustomed to close encounters and things like that so so in one of these reserves if you see an interesting invertebrate or reptile you just mm. look at it through the window unfortunately yes most of the reserves you're, you're restricted completely to the vehicle especially the reserves where you have dangerous animals such as elephants lions leopards we do have a, a number of reserves where you are able to do walking tours um, or you are able to actually hop out of the vehicle and have a look around Many of the campgrounds uh, inside of a lot of your national parks, 
they would be you know ideal areas to be able to walk around the camps you're inside of an enclosed area then so they're separately fenced off yeah that's right they're Mm. separately fenced off so you can walk around those areas fairly safely and you can start looking at a lot of the smaller things then but yes unfortunately a lot of the national parks like the kruger yeah you wouldn't take your chances (laughs) no most of your tours in in the national parks or uh, the majority of our tours are inside of the national parks um, I uh, run a few tours myself plus also I guide for another company where we do conduct tours looking at things like dragonflies butterflies birds so you know obviously a lot of those types of tours they actually move into a different level you're then looking for dragonflies and butterflies you don't want to be restricted to a vehicle you don't want to you know if you see an interesting damselfly for an example i mean some of those guys are only you know two and a half centimeters long i mean you can't view that through a pair of binoculars you really need to actually hop out and get down and view it properly and people want to get nice close-up photographs too don't they oh most certainly most certainly and you know with macro lenses nowadays you really need to get nice and close so early morning with a nice painted lady a familiar butterfly that we get over here as well early morning a nice painted lady that's a little bit relaxed and isn't so flighty and uh, yeah you can get really nice and close with a macro no jokes about painted ladies in the morning we were talking butterflies (laughs) (laughs) so if we were on a tour and we saw an African rock python if we was actually in a national park I wouldn't be able to jump out unfortunately not wow that would be hard work that would be pretty hard work but what's really quite interesting is that you know many of the the tours that we do in the national parks you don't actually get to see that many snakes it's uh it's sad we you know we've had our fair share of sightings we've had some some beautiful african rock python sightings um we've had uh um black mambas um yeah quite a few different things but uh generally speaking they they're obviously fairly flighty with the vehicles Mm. they um you know, the vibrations from the vehicles and you tend to, uh, especially if you're in an open safari vehicle, the moment you stop at something, you tend to get an attraction of, uh, you know, followers. Everybody else sees, oh, the open safari vehicle has stopped, they must see something. So <laughs> That was the same with the boats and the Kilimanjaro, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as soon as one stopped, everyone... Everybody else everybody gathers around. Them. Do you see many reptiles? Uh, Sorry, deb- my reptile side is just coming out now. <laughs> You've got a reptile side? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, really depends on the tour. I know a company who actually offer reptile tours themselves or just focusing on reptiles. You obviously get to see a lot of other things while you're out there. Mm. But, yeah, the main focus would be reptiles. So it depends on the tour. It depends on the location that you're, you're travelling as well. Certain locations would be better for, for viewing reptiles, but... Mm. Is it easy to see all of these, like if you, if you wanted to do a tour to see the big five, would you see them? You've got a pretty good chance. It depends on yeah. time. You know, much, much like what you would find, I'm sure you guys would have experienced in Borneo as well if you had a list of animals that you wanted to see. You really need to dedicate time to be able to yeah. see a lot of these species. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people travelling to South Africa or Southern Africa, they will come over on a safari, but what they'll do is they'll dedicate one day or maybe two days to a tour. And we always say to people, you know, if you can really dedicate at least four or five days, maybe a week or two weeks if you're able to, break it up a little bit if you need to, dedicate a bit more time, then you're not in as much of a rush to try and 
you know, get all of the species that you're looking for. Some people do come over and they uh, they are searching for just the big five, you know, the, the list tickers. They come over, they just want to tick off an elephant, tick off a giraffe, tick off a buffalo. However, yeah, we we try to avoid those those uh, list stickers. We try to offer more private, more exclusive tours um, rather than going with group tours um, where you, d- you can get some people who are interested only in ticking a list. Um, we try to offer more private tours. So it would be, say for an example, the two of you gentlemen uh, would come over and you would do a tour together. Now you both have similar interests. You both understand each other. You both know that, okay, well, he wants to sit with this, you know, the the South African rock python. You want to sit there with that for an hour? That's fine. It's only the two of you, so we can sit there for an hour. Whereas when you're on a group tour, unfortunately, if one person wants to sit watching an impala eat grass (laughs) for 45 minutes, the rest of the vehicle almost guaranteed don't want to. So you need to move on. You need to move on to something else. And that's a shame because when you're sitting even looking at something as common as an impala eating grass, you can be sitting there watching it and you can learn so much more, not just about that, in, that individual animal, but what about its interactions with the environment? What happens when the grey luri, the grey go-away bird, sorry, it's now called, what happens when that grey go-away bird comes in, lands in the tree and he starts calling out and then all of a sudden he changes his call watch the impala the ears prick up and starts twitching, he'll maybe lift his head and it's basically because he's responding to the behaviour of another animal because there may be an aerial predator maybe there's something else that's disturbed it it's, it's about paying attention to all of those little details. And that's what I say. It's, there's so much more than just there's an impala. Tick. Tick. Yeah, I could quite easily spend, in those instances, like hours with watching an impala if you've got other animals in there, like, and there's some sort of interaction. Uh, and you're trying to learn what they're doing. Most certainly. Yeah, that's, yeah. That does no, sound that's... quite interesting. I wonder if they'd sit there if a... African rock python was eating an impala that would, <laughs> that would hold them in it's actually quite interesting a, a point that you raised there I mean we've had uh, moments where we've had a leopard with a baby steenbok, a small antelope species and uh, this baby was maybe not quite two weeks old very unsteady on its legs still and this leopard had caught it and was almost playing cat and mouse with it and uh, we were following it along and it got to the point where, you know, we'd noticed that the clients sitting in the back of the vehicle, the majority of them were in tears. Mm. So we thought, okay, no, we're going to move on now. And as we started the vehicle, everybody is saying, no, no, stop, stop. It's okay. It's okay. I'm, we want to stay. We want to watch. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Wiping the tears away. We're it's, sick, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I guess, instinct. You need yeah. to know what the outcome is going to be. So, yes. If people saw a rock python, I think a lot of people would find it very hard to actually pull themselves away from it. Yes, yeah, I don't want to watch it through. <laughs> what sort of other interactions have you seen that have maybe shocked you or have been standouts? You know, <laughs> probably the the interactions that have probably shocked me the most is actually human interaction. The amount of times we've seen people over the years 
going against the rules and regulations. You know, rule number one on the entrance permit to the Kruger National Park is do not hop out of your vehicle. No part of your body may protrude the vehicle unless you're in a designated area. But the amount of times we've pulled up next to people who have hopped out of their vehicle next to an elephant because they want a photo without the window frame. Or people who are sitting out of the vehicle looking over the roof at lions in the field. Yet they've missed the lions that are sitting in the field behind them. So it's human behaviour. Yeah. And there's plenty of YouTube videos supporting what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Many of them. Oh, you could lose yourself. You've been there for 12 years. Have you seen mm. much change in that time? Uh, you know, in 12 years, uh, there's really been a, a significant change in the amount of tourists I've seen uh, going into the Kruger National Park, as an example. But probably the most significant change that I've seen is the amount of tourists, international tourists, who are actually getting out into other areas, you know, not just the Kruger National Park, taking an interest in places like the Kalahari, taking interest in places like the Karoo. Now, the Karoo is a very dry, arid region in central South Africa. It doesn't really support a huge amount of wildlife or the, the huge amount of wildlife that you would see very easily in the Kruger National Park. The Karoo supports things that are nocturnal that are very difficult to find. A lot like our marsupials here. Very difficult to find and often only visible of a night time. So in the Karoo, you'll find things like your aardvark, your aardwolf, black-footed cat, the South African hedgehog, you know, bat-eared foxes, all of these sorts of things. And they generate a completely different form of excitement. But it's a lot of work. You really need to get out. You spend a lot of really late nights uh, I mean, we've been on night drives until 2.30 in the morning before looking for species. And then you go back to the, the lodge or the bed and breakfast that you're staying at, 7 o'clock the next morning, you have a little bit of a sleep in, 7 o'clock the next morning, you're at breakfast, and then you're on the road again to go looking for something else. You've got to put the work in, though, don't you? You really do. You really do. You know, I know uh, when I was doing dedicated day tours into the Kruger National Park, our busy season sometimes you would leave home 3.30 in the morning and by the time you've dropped your clients off had a full day in the Kruger National Park you wouldn't get home until 7.30 sometimes 8 o'clock in the evening the next day you do it all over again and that can go sometimes 3-4 months straight so you're finished at the end of a, (laughs) a busy season but you know what how exciting is it you get paid to do that as your job I mean what a wonderful opportunity and not necessarily just because you get paid, as you know, us guys working in nature conservation or any form of nature conservation and education, we don't really earn a lot of money, but we don't do it for the money, we do it for the passion. How exciting is it to be able to share that first impala sighting with a client? Because you know what? When that client goes home, what are they doing at the end of their tour? They're getting a photo with you as the guide because that photo of you as a guide goes into their family photo album. So how many hundreds, if not thousands, of family photo albums around the world have a photo of me in it? How good does that make me feel that I've made those clients enjoy their holiday so much that I've earned a place in their family photo album? That's what we like to try and make people realise is that, you know, we don't want you to come over just as a once-off. Once you've been on a tour... 
you need to become a part of the family. We don't want you to go away feeling like, wow, that was a really good tour, that was a great guide. We want you to go away and say, that was an awesome tour with a really good friend. That's what it's about. I can see that because even when we went to Borneo and like we're still good friends with John mm. um, from Borneo and, and things, and you, you do. Well, I've got pictures of him on my phone and most and, and stuff like that because he and and you yes. have shown people stuff that they could only dream about and read about up Definitely. until that point, and then you're shown, and that is Definitely. some of the most special moments in oh, some people's lives. It is. Oh. How, how's uh, South Africa on there? You know, educating people on conservation and things. Do you know what? Uh, conservation plays a very big part, and conservation education plays a very big part in South Africa. There's quite a number of organisations. One thing that they're really pushing a lot of uh, in South Africa is trying to get as many people as possible involved in citizen science. I know that happens quite a lot here now in, in Australia as well. I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around... It's, it's strange when you hear it happening in other countries. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around who, who are the organisations here to go with them and what have you. But in South Africa, we have a, an organisation, the uh, Animal Demography Unit. They were formerly part of the University of Cape Town. I believe they're now the Biodiversity Institute. They run a, a series of projects. I mean, they do citizen science projects on scorpions, spiders, reptiles, mammals, birds, birds with odd plumage, mushrooms, orchids, you name it. There's dragonflies, butterflies, there's a whole heap of things. Ant lions uh, or lace wings. Um, ant lions? Ant lions, yes. Mm. They're here, they're a little, well they start off with the little ant lion form and there's yes. like little conical craters in the sand and they're like a pitfall and they eat ants when ants fall into That's the little right. pitfall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. Matt Bonnet's showing me them at his house. He's got them, and he put. I said, "What are they?" And yeah, he put an, uh, he chewed an ant into the hole, and something came up and grabbed it. <laughs> that line. Yeah. Wow, that's right. Yeah, so that's basically the larval form of uh, your lace wings, mm. um, or that's one of the species. But yeah, your lace wings. So they're basically once they're in the adult form, they're almost like a dragonfly or a or a uh, damselfly. Yeah, they're beautiful. Beautiful things. And you, you get quite a number of different species. Mm, that's great that there's good conservation stuff going on over there. Oh, there's some wonderful yeah, really conservation good. projects going on <laughs> over there. And fortunately, you know, it's, uh, being Southern Africa and having such a, an immense amount of diversity in the wildlife that's there, you know, there, there's a lot of international volunteer projects and what have you going on, attracting more and more people from around the world to actually come in and take part in it, you know, whether or not it be on some of the um, veterinary projects. Our very own Dr Wayne Boardman, and a good friend and neighbour and has been on the show, he uh, he goes over there each year with his vet students. Oh, He's a wildlife fantastic. vet. They do a lot of good stuff over there and it's great, oh, amazing experience for these future wildlife vets to Most go over certainly. there and work with, you know, wild animals. We hear a lot about poaching over mm -hmm. here does that ever affect your work over there yeah look poaching uh, unfortunately poaching is a very real thing uh, that is a very real problem you know and especially for for some of us guides i mean you know a lot of us have have witnessed or you know have had experiences where for an example one of my recent tours that i i ran we literally were one of the last vehicles coming into the gates of the camp and uh you know, maybe one and a half, two kilometres or so away from the gates of the camp. We saw a nice big male rhino on the side of the road, stopped, took a few photos, um, you know, carried on, got back into the gates. And then uh, 
the next morning as we were exiting, we got a radio call from another guide who was asking whether or not the uh, the rhino that was laying on the side of the road that had been poached overnight had been reported to the rangers. And it so happens that that was the same rhino that we had photographed the evening before. Mm. Then it really hits home. So what are they, like, without being too macabre, what are they, they killing the animal and chopping its horn off? Is that what they're doing? Yeah, that's right. And it's a quick and easy thing. It's, it's, it's something that's happening. I mean, it's right on the edge of the road. It's, it's as long as it takes to pull the trigger and quickly hop oh, out. And is it medical reasons that they take these horns? Medicinal purposes, yeah. They grind the horn down, I believe. And, and yet it's just made out of the same stuff as your fingernails. As your fingernails. I've got to thank you, Toby. Um, we um, had a phone conversation early in the week, and you, you, you made a great point. You talked about how you know we're into the whole environment, not just the big five. And, uh, and you said normally it's one species or one group of animals to get people involved. And with Steve and I, it was reptiles. And the Aussie Wildlife Show did its very first series of stage shows this weekend we we got up at science alive in front of probably about no, it was about six seven hundred people wow. and it was great it was awesome and i and i thought what, what are we going to talk about and and we started off with the humble bearded dragon so we said to the the parents and kids and families that mm. if you've got a kid that's interested in whether it's a bird or a lizard or whatever it is you can you know for christmas you know they've got that interest you can buy them an encyclopedia on birds or reptiles and start learning well what does it eat and what does its food eat and that, that was a bit bit like that for you wasn't it mate yeah most certainly look uh, my first trip over to south africa actually you know i never really had an interest in birds i love birds now i'm absolutely mad about them but my first trip to south africa and the kruger national park in actual fact uh, i saw a bird sitting in a tree and my wife was very into it and I, uh, I said to her, oh, you know, there was one of those yellow birds that you've been looking at um, all day up in the tree. And she said, oh, which one? I said, I don't know. It's one of those weaver things, I think you called it. Those ones that make those funny little baskets. And uh, so, yeah, she handed me the bird book and handed me a pair of binoculars and said, go and find out which one it is. And when you figure it out, come back and tell me. So I did. I went. I identified it as a southern mast weaver very common throughout South Africa but identified this bird and that was it I was hooked it's, it gets addictive I mean it's like when you're a kid and I'm, a, I'm old enough that when <laughs> I was a kid we had kiss cards you know and, and there were collector's cards and Most some certainly. were rare some yes. were common and it's the same when you have your bird book or your plant book or your frog book or your lizard book or your whatever there's certain ones that are common you learn them oh, that's cool okay and, and then you start going well you know the one that's really rare but you haven't seen it yet. And when you do see it on the field, it's like, oh, it's exciting. It's exciting. Fantastic. That's right. That's very, very true. And, you know, you kind of get to that point where, look, I'm not a twitcher at all. I know you've had, uh, what's the gentleman? Uh, John Gisham. John John Gisham. Gisham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You had John Gisham on here. He was also saying he's not a twitcher. Um, You know, I believe he also explained a little bit about what a twitcher is. But uh, I'm also, I'm not a twitcher. I've only ever twitched one bird that happened to be all of one and a half kilometres away from home. But anyway, so I don't know if you'd really call that a twitch. I didn't really go out of my way to go and see it. But, um, you know, I've been very fortunate and blessed in my work that I've been in the right location at the right time to see a number of species. So in South Africa, we have over 960 species of bird um, that you're able to see. Uh, obviously, there's quite a number of them that are vagrants, you know, one-offs or 
you know, very rarely pop up. And now I've seen 700 and I think it's 723 of them. Wow. <laughs> now, yeah. I've never done a pelagic tour either. So I know I can at least add another maybe 10, 15 birds with, with relative ease if I actually get out and do a, a pelagic tour, which is hopping out on a boat and, you know, going out in deep sea, following the, the trawlers around, fishing all, trawlers. All the different and, types of gulls that look pretty much the same. Yeah, most of them. <laughs> wow, the gulls? Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, gulls, if you're listening. Yeah. So, yes, you, you kind of, you do get to that point where, you know, now I'm at the point now where 723 species later, it's becoming very, very difficult to actually find new birds. So when you do get a new one, it's a big achievement and it's quite exciting. That's interesting. I remember I was, I was with John Gisham about 15 years ago and we were at a park and we were looking at some birds and he, he said, look, this is a common bird here, yes. you know, but don't ever take it for granted because you don't know in 10 years, 20, 20 years, if Most it's going to be a common bird here. Mm. And it was quite interesting. And he talked about some other birds that were common here that never used to be here, you know, and, and climates change and things change and, Definitely. you know, you just don't know what the future holds. No, that's, that's for sure. It's something, yeah, I'd love to travel the world. And, and every country that I go to, or, or the countries that I would like to go to, would have to involve a python or a boa. Oh, Mainly certainly. pythons. I'd love to go and see all the pythons. Now, if I actually said that's what I'm going to do, I've probably set myself an impossible task. Because as you know, pythons, they're so hard to find. So it, it is something that I'd love to start doing. Every country that I go to has to have a python or a boa. Mm. But that said, like when we were in Borneo, you just as excited about the birds the oh, invertebrates the <clears throat> mammals but that, that's the thing if I go for a python and boas and, and I'm not that's what, not all I'm going to be looking at I'm going to be looking at so many different types of wildlife at that point searching for pythons and boas and, Most certainly. but I'm going to see everything Most um, certainly. and you know uh, you guys wanting to touch a little bit on Madagascar as well do we? That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the really exciting things for me in Madagascar was that that ability to be able to see so many different species of reptiles in Madagascar. I mean, those chameleons, it is unbelievable to see some of those chameleons that are, you know, the size of the end of your thumb. Yeah. And you, you find that thing of a nighttime when you're walking along the sides of the roads or, or in through some of the national parks. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. However, with that said, what was really sad was how hard it was to actually find Mm. reptiles in Madagascar. We saw a huge diversity of species when I was there last year. But if I can compare how many species we saw there in that two-week block to what I would have seen when I was back in Southern Africa, walking through certain areas that you're targeting reptiles was actually quite low. Oh, wow. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, Southern Africa, I guess, you know, it's a little bit like here, density-wise, bird-wise, here in South Australia or in the Adelaide Hills especially. You know, if I go out into my backyard, I see a huge amount of bird life. Uh, Sulfur-crested cockatoos, you know, the uh, little corellas, galahs, um, the uh, New Holland honey-eaters. There's a huge amount of bird life. Yet, if I actually look at the diversity of species, it's actually much lower than what I was finding in South Africa 
which is quite interesting. So it's very interesting. I mean, obviously that fluctuates a lot depending on the type in, time of year, the conditions and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, there was one thing I noticed with Madagascar was that we saw quite a lot of species, but the volume was was actually quite small. Madagascar, you know, from the perspective of wildlife, I mean, wow, mm. just wow. That everything that you see there, apart from a handful of birds, pretty much everything that you see is new. It's unique. It's got a massive percentage of endemism, doesn't it? It does. It does. It, it was absolutely amazing. And I mean, you know, to see even the bird life, I mean, some of the birds there that you find, the, the ground rollers and, and what have you, I mean, that was just fantastic. You know, what was really interesting for me traveling in Madagascar was that you know, I was there with a client. Uh, it was an individual client who wanted to, to tour there. I, In essence, uh, it was a bit of a guinea pig tour. I was going there to sort of trial Madagascar as a possible future destination. And I had a client who was interested in coming along as well. So that was wonderful. We got to, I got to experience it from, you know, as if I was running a tour. And what happened was we arrived there. So there's my client, myself as her tour leader. Then we have a ground guide, then we have a driver, and then as we arrive to each site, we have a site guide, and the site guide also has two or three sidekicks who are running around the field finding the things for you because you can't just drive through the national park and find everything like you would in Kruger National Park, for an example, where you only need to be one individual guide. So there's multiple people searching for everything, but what I found so beautiful about that was the fact that although there were so many people, it's not an expensive destination. It's, it's relatively affordable for tourism, for ecotourism. And the beautiful thing about that is that each of those guides were supporting each other. So there's no greed financially. Everybody was trying to spread the money out and the love out as much as they can so that everybody survives and can benefit from the ecotourism that was coming through. So that was a wonderful thing for me. Were you mostly focused on the East Coast? Uh, okay, so we uh, focused, we basically landed in Antananarivo, uh, the capital, uh, or Tana, as a lot of people refer to it. We headed down south and inland a little bit and then came back up and crossed to the northeast. We weren't really there for very long. We were only there for about 10 days uh, on that tour. It's As I say, a it was basically place, isn't it? It is quite big. Yeah. It is really quite big. Yeah. It's broken up north to south by that big mountain range, isn't it? And it's like a the, the west coast is or western sides a yes. bit of a rain shadow from yes. that mountain range. Yeah, definitely. It is. Yeah, the East Coast definitely has uh, your tropical forests and or, you know, the, the northeastern areas are more tropical forests. I know there's a lot of tourism, uh, especially for beachgoers, more so in the north, up around Nosy Bee and what have you. Uh, attracts a lot of a lot of people in for relaxing on beautiful sandy beaches and... Beautiful chameleon, Nosy Bee chameleon. <laughs> it is. Chameleon. It is. Mm. The home of chameleons, isn't it? You've got a couple in Africa, but they're mostly <coughs> over there, aren't they, Madagascar? Oh, Madagascar. The chameleons over there were fantastic. So we were based in uh, Bloemfontein in South Africa. Bloemfontein is basically central, a little bit like Alice Springs. You know, it's, uh, you know it was almost a transport hub. But yeah, 
uh, Bloemfontein in central South Africa. That's where we were based. And what was really interesting there was that there was no naturally occurring species of chameleon, yet we found three different species there. Two of them dwarf chameleons and one of them the large flat neck chameleon, which is the large green chameleon that you find in the Kruger National Park. Um, but the, uh, the dwarf chameleons, mostly the Eastern Cape dwarf chameleon, were stowaways in the nursery mm. plant trade. Okay. Mm. We've got a, um, the flower pot snake, which is an introduced snake to Northern Australia that comes in in... It's a, it's a blind snake, so it's yes. kind of subterranean and comes in in plants. Introduce hmm. blind snake. There you go. So it was a, a, a successful trip to Madagascar, and you're going to be offering more trips there? Most certainly. Yeah. If anybody's interested in Madagascar, I would love to go back there. Mm. Yeah, it was a fantastic destination. It's um, a tricky destination. You don't want to go there by yourself. Try and, you know, I mean, you, you can go there by yourself, but you do need to organize with ground operators. You know, Madagascar, you can't hire a vehicle unless you're a, a local citizen or a local resident in the country. We found that nobody would allow us to rent a vehicle anywhere, and I think it's simply because much of Madagascar is not signposted. You know, I don't know how... I've never had a look on Google Maps whether or not they've actually managed to map a network of roads around there or not, but it's... Uh, so having local knowledge, utilising local guides certainly my recommendation if you're not going through a tour operator such as myself utilize local guides because otherwise you're going to get yourself somewhere where you don't really want to be so you want to be picked up from the airport yeah be picked up from the airport and have a driver guide have a driver guide Mm. yeah or driver and guide either way and then yeah just understand that you know when you're when you're traveling through madagascar you you're supporting the community. So if you'd arrive at a, a destination, for an example, one of the rainforests and or one of the dry deciduous forests and you hop out to go and look for a certain species of um, owl or, or something, then understand that the guys who are there at the site, they spend their time looking for the animal so that when somebody like you arrives there, they can take you straight to it or they can show you the things that are in that forest. And, uh, yeah, the beautiful thing about it is uh, for a very, f- very small fee, you're actually supporting the community mm. and encouraging them to maintain the, and they need the that. ecosystem. Most mm. certainly, yeah, most certainly. Because, you see, one of the things that's quite sad about Madagascar is the, the defragmentation of uh, patches of forest you know I remember one of the the dry deciduous forests that we went into uh, there was um, one of the white lemurs I'll think of the name Safaka the Safaka that's right uh, <laughs> How <weird>. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. Is that also the name of the lemur? Coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so you can edit that one in later. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the dry deciduous forests that we went into uh, in search of the safaka, um, one of the white lemurs, we found a small family group. And what was really interesting was talking to the local guide, uh, the local site guide, and asking him how many families was he aware of in that patch of forest he simply said to me we only have three groups and the reason for that is because the patch of forest is so small and the distance between the next patch of forest 
is too large for them to actually move to. And it's simply because of the clearing of all of the forests for agriculture, for rice fields, for... That fragmentation is a massive issue too. We had Dr Aaron Kamers on the show and we yes. were talking about... We ended up talking about global warming. He's a paleontologist. I don't know if he talked about climate a lot of the... <laughs> sure. But anyway, he was saying one of the things about climate change is normally animals would be able to migrate to different parts to different of parts. the country. But when it's fragmented, I mean, you know, like we... You know, like a common scaly foot or a yeah, legless is it's not going to be able to cruise across the freeway. That's right. Mm. You know, things... Are, I mean, unless you're a bird, uh, you, you're kind of stuck in that patch and That's so adapt true. or die. That's so true. So a lot of people say that Madagascar, oh, you should get there in the next 10 years, otherwise it will just be decimated. I don't think that is the fact now, or...? I have to be honest with you, I'd probably encourage people to see it while you can. Wow. Uh, I don't know what the future holds. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the situation is there at the moment. I haven't spoken to uh, the ground operator that I utilise there um, for at least a couple of months. It's, uh, uh, after my experience there, I would suggest see it while you can. Things can change very quickly. I mean, we've seen that with many wildlife species across the world. What do you think? What do you think is if you if you were to try to consolidate a conservation message into something simple that people could comprehend? What, what would you say to people? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one thing I always try to encourage people to do is, you know don't necessarily do a band-aid fix don't jump out there and just say i want to give money to this fund or that fund and then go home and forget about it because you've contributed your small amount of money to a fund i always say to people you know what first and foremost change your attitude towards conservation realize that when we come home and we're living in our big house or in a city and we decide that we want a bigger car park in the in the shopping complex because there's never enough space and I have to walk too far or, or something. At the end of the day, we take more land from the wildlife. The less land there is for them to enjoy. And the problem with that is, and people don't realise this, it, it would almost be on a daily basis, you know, on the aspect we chatted earlier in regards to culling. How many species around the world have to be controlled by culling operations not necessarily because of anything, then there's just not enough land to maintain a growing population. We have to manage it ourselves now because we we've impacted all of it. And, yeah, That's like right, most certainly. I mean, you know, if, if you talk about Africa, or Southern Africa especially, Southern Africa, there is a lot of hunting goes on, there's a lot of debates about the hunting that goes on in Southern Africa, and especially when it comes to culling operations there's really a lot of public outcry about that however what about here in australia you know i mean if if for an example in south africa if a culling operation is going to go ahead to control an elephant population that has become too big for the environment that it's sustained within there's a lot of public outcry but it's exactly the same here in australia what happens when a koala population becomes too big or something that we see on a regular basis a kangaroo population becomes too big many people have got no problem about saying no we'll get rid of the kangaroos they're a pest what do you think the rest of the world thinks of that yeah the trouble is there are some people who who now don't understand sometimes that that 
these things are maybe sometimes required yeah that fight harder which causes some animals to get out of control yeah most certainly mm. no that's true how does how does the average tour for mm. you go yeah okay so typically for us um what we do uh, we like to offer people you know i mean here in australia classic example many australians you know if you mention the word south africa you know a lot of people you know they have a little bit of a fear or you know hair on the back of their neck stands up you know they're, they're ready to to defend themselves why they shouldn't travel to south africa uh, because of horror stories they've heard or whatever else but you know we try to take a lot of that away from people we try to say to people look you know what when we organize a tour for you all we want you to do is arrive at the airport take photos and then we'll drop you back off at the airport that's it everything is included you don't need to worry about carrying money with you everything is included we'll pay for your drinks we'll pay for your meals the lot is done all you need to do is get there take your photos and then we'll drop you back off so typically our clients would fly into johannesburg that's the majority of our tours uh, and then it's a roughly three and a half to four hour drive through to the Kruger National Park. It uh, depends sometimes, depending on the tour, we can take different routes and, you know, stop at different destinations on the way. But typically speaking, three and a half to four hours through to the Kruger National Park from Johannesburg, and then you start your game viewing straight away. Again, it's a very tricky one to actually talk about tours because our tours are completely private and completely custom. Uh, so it depends on what the the client has a particular interest in as to what destination we're going to uh, focus on um, what the client's budget is as as opposed to uh, you know when you're comparing accommodation it really varies a lot would you recommend a smaller a smaller tour most certainly something uh, you know there was a uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of South Park um, but I don't know if you guys are. <laughs> I don't mind South Park. Yeah, <laughs> but there was a really good uh, illustration. Um, I think it was like season 16, episode 6 or something like that, uh, of the guys going on a zipline tour. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> and the nightmare that they had being on this group tour. You know, look, group tours, I've, personal opinion, a group tour has its place. Um, if you're young and you enjoy socialising with lots of different people and you're not really fussed, you know what, do a group tour, that's fine. But if you want to really take the time to appreciate and enjoy what you're seeing, rather go private. Unfortunately, it does become more expensive because you're wearing the cost all to yourself or all to your small group. But at the end of the day, if you want to really get the most out of it, I would highly recommend a, a private tour. I think that's really good advice. Just got to say, if the listeners can hear, we <laughs> are getting hammered. <laughs> we are getting hammered by rain and Arctic winds right now here in the Adelaide Hills. It sounds amazing what you do, mate. Yeah, we, we'd love to see where it goes with this Madagascar tour because we've talked about going over there. Yeah. And I, oh, I most certainly. I think f- that'll be a great plan. Absolutely, and there'd be a few episodes over there to, to be had, I would say. Definitely, yeah. You're from Australia, and you've come back to Australia. Do you, do you see Australia different now you've been in Africa for so long? Most certainly. What, Most certainly. What stands out? Um, you know, one thing for me is uh, probably as... Wow, that wind really is picking up. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, one thing for me is probably the agriculture that is here. 
the overutilization of the natural grasslands, especially here in South Australia. It is unbelievable for me to see how much vegetation has actually been cleared from the Adelaide Hills. Yeah, that, that's probably the biggest thing for me. Uh, coming back here, though, from a wildlife perspective, it has actually been really good because I'm looking at my own country in a sense, my, my birth country. You look at it through completely different eyes. You know, for the last 12 years living in South Africa and being completely immersed in not only in tourism, in ecotourism, but uh, being involved in citizen science projects and a number of uh, environmental impact assessments, for an example, that I was helping a friend of mine with from an ornithological perspective, your eyes are open to so much more. So I was out in the field uh, near Mount Bold yesterday, and what was really interesting was noticing these bare patches uh, amongst the Cape Weed and Salvation Jane, these bare patches where these I'm not 100% sure what what species they actually are but the uh, trapdoor spiders how many trapdoor spiders are actually utilizing these bare patches amongst this weed to actually build their burrows and not only that areas where it's bare we found a uh, I believe it was a uh, mast lapwing uh, or plover egg in these bare patches amongst this weed and and then actually getting down and finding, as you scrape the, the leaf litter back, finding these millipedes and, you know, native, uh, not, not the little black millipedes. Not the Portuguese um, ones. Yeah, not the little mm. Portuguese ones, but these the native, mm. native millipedes and, and spiders. And, oh, it was fascinating. So, but as I say, if, if I hadn't have actually exposed myself to all of that while I was in South Africa, being involved in all of these different projects, I don't think I would have paid much attention to it coming back here now there's so much to know and you can't know it all and that's i think you touched on it right at the very beginning sorry to bring us back full yeah, circle yeah. but you you learn so much from people that come on your tours and i, I see Not it so here with backpackers and travelers that come to australia they tend to know more about australia than the average australian i mean most australians are just blown away by the fact that when they learn that we've got 250 species of marsupial in this country most, most people, certainly most people know what koala kangaroo possum maybe wombat bilby if they're lucky keep going yeah, well there's 20 dunnarts so there's 20 um, yeah, that, that's right there's 20 dunnarts however then touching on that as well it's not just a kangaroo how many species of kangaroo and wallabies do we actually have i don't know as a, as a kid a, yeah, yeah and that's an amazing point right. when you look at madagascar like the lemurs of madagascar like the, the kangaroos certain. and wallabies of Australia, mm. it's exactly it's the same par, scenario. It, it, is. Is. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. really is. It's quite amazing when you look on it like that. Yeah. Most certainly. Mm. You know, I've actually uh, look. I don't operate here in Australia at this stage. Um, I will be, you know, over the coming years. I plan on putting together a few tours around Australia. Uh, but I've been toying with an itinerary for Australia, just an introduction itinerary, and it's incredible that an introduction itinerary to Australia just to give you a good taste of what Australia can offer I'm struggling to keep it shorter than three weeks mm. <laughs> it, yeah. it's mm. just and that's really only just scratching on the surface it's you know a day here two days there that's just the it's drive an, from north to south that's right <laughs> <laughs> that's true it's 3,000 kilometres <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a massive diverse country and you could 
I mean, you know, I grew up near a conservation park and you go there every day and you still find new spots and places and species. And oh, most yeah. certainly. Most certainly. And I mean, you know, compare Australia to South Africa. South Africa will fit five times inside of Australia. Now, South Africa, for 12 years, my job has been taking people to wildlife destinations throughout South Africa. And I can tell you now, in 12 years, I have barely scratched the surface. There is so much to see. Now look at Australia, five times larger. 7,692 square kilometers, Australia. There you go. That's insane. Hmm. Never looked at it's that before. It's a huge, it's a huge bit of land. Well, mate, Toby, thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. It's been awesome. We, I think we'll do this again, but maybe we'll do it in South Africa or Madagascar. South Africa and Madagascar. And Madagascar. And Madagascar. We've got to go to South Africa to get to Madagascar, haven't we, I think? Uh, to get to Madagascar, yes, you do. Yeah. Yes. Well, there we go. Or you go in Mauritius or something, but you go. Well, I wanted to say as we can even take the cheaper flight and fly via Mauritius and have a layover for a day or two. Could do that, can't we? <laughs> go see a dodo. They're still there? Yeah. <laughs> They're still there. <laughs> yeah, no, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah thanks, No, mate. wonderful. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, really appreciated the opportunity to come on and looking forward to the next few. Been wanting to do it for a long time, mate. Thank you. And thank you for listening.